Bring out the talent. Bring out the talent. Bring out the talent. Welcome to Bring Out the Talent, a podcast featuring learning and development experts discussing innovative approaches and industry insights. Tune in to hear our talent help develop yours. Now here are your hosts, TTA's CEO and President Maria Melfa and Talent Manager Jocelyn Allen. Jocelyn, I am so excited about our podcast today because it's something that I am very passionate about. Passion? You? I don't believe it. Hi, everybody. It's Jocelyn. We are really excited about the topic today and to bring you another fabulous guest. And we love that you're here with us again. So how can executives lead with a culture-focused mindset and shape their organization's culture and ensure stellar productivity? We dive into that today with our special guest, John Mancuso. John is a seasoned educator, writer, founder of Authentic Communication Matters, and a beloved TTA consultant. Welcome, John. We're so excited to have you with us today. And I'm thrilled to be here, Maria. Thank you. Yay, John. I love, I have to say it real quick. John and I have a really, like, I love John so much. I'm so glad you're here. We work together very frequently. He was the first TTA resource I ever interviewed as a recruiter. And so it's just like that little piece of my heart right there, John. That's interesting. Isn't that a cute it is. Start things off, right? Yeah. So we're very excited, John, to get to introduce you to, you know, all of our listeners and tell them exactly why we we love working with you as much as we do. You've been a partner to TTA for many years. Can you tell us what led you to become a learning and development consultant? Sure. So I started out teaching English to college students and I loved it, but I was seduced by the administrator salary. So I switched over to being a thankless administration work and found out because the faculty was unionized, I could no longer be in the classroom, but I had that drive to teach. So I started teaching faculty members to be better. And that started my love of adult learners. And so I went from there to educational publisher and then, you know, went in-house at several organizations. And now I'm out of my own with adult learners and the L&D space. And I have to say that what I've learned from my experience in college is that you have to sell the relevance and the value immediately and that people will sense if you don't have any passion. I mean, immediately, they have to know that you're passionate about your subject. So I got a lot of good training there. What's different about the adult learner in the L&D space is that you really don't teach adults anything. They pretty much know what you already have, what you're presenting, but you're giving them a sort of formality and a vocabulary to talk about it. You're raising their consciousness about the subjects so they can apply it back in their workplaces. So it's similar and different, but I wouldn't be, I would, I'm happier here than I, than I was there. So thrilled to be here in this space. Just almost giving them the framework on how to be successful? I think so. I think they know it intuitively, but again, it's sort of formalizing, giving them a vocabulary, giving them a place to apply the knowledge. Absolutely. You said part of what you were saying was that you were teaching educators like how to be better. That's how you got started and kind of like fell in love with that. What does that mean? Like what kind of things did you do that meant, you know, I'm going to teach you to be better? Well, is this being recorded? <laughs> the teacher, <laughs> teachers, I, I shouldn't say this. 
I won't say category that the teachers are admittedly poor students, right? So they almost think that they are, can't be taught anything about how to be better. So that's where you have to reach people to say it's science, just like anything else on some level, right? It's now all intuitive and there are a set of best practices in reaching people. And that's really about how you would teach an L&D person, right? You have to have some kind of engagement. You don't talk at them. You don't know everything. You show some humility, those kind of things. Thanks, absolutely. So how has your work changed since we have moved to this hybrid world? Well, my commute is shorter to the living room, (laughs) (laughs) which has got to, you know, it's interesting. I commuted for years on New York City subway and hated every minute of standing an hour back and forth for many, many years. And I have to say, now I'm almost missing that palate cleanser and having to get out, right? I think we're all sort of tied to our desks, especially if we work at home largely. There's really no separation. And there's a lot of that, you know, it's interesting. I think most people have embraced the virtual model, most clients in L&D. It's almost like sometimes not even discussed. It's just assumed it will be virtual and maybe that'll change. And I, I'm not really sure, but definitely moving into the hybrid challenges of hybrid workplace and those subjects around there are, are, are it's becoming more common topic. So what are some of the topics? Because I know we're hearing at the same time all about the great resignation. So how do leaders work differently to keep the culture alive in this hybrid environment? Well, first of all, it's interesting. I think the seeds of the great resignation and being an employee, the the mandate to be employee-centered happened before, right? So it's interesting because now you're either with a client who understood that and now is just kind of transitioning to a hybrid workplace, or some people are kind of getting hit on the head with both. Oh, now I have to change my philosophy and the way we work. So I would say, Maria, the biggest things about the hybrid workplace is that you have to individualize your initiative. So for instance, there's a lot of talk about we need to replace the water cooler conversation. We need to replace the the social interactions virtually. Well, you still have to individualize that. You know, if you work all day with people and then you have to do an engagement with them in the evening, a happy hour, something like that, that might not work for everybody, right? So you have to individualize and reach people the way they want to be, the way they want to be reached. The other big thing I think is we need to look at the metrics by which we measure performance in a hybrid workplace. Now, the number of direct reports for a manager, say, is not no longer an accurate metric. How many of those reports are purely remote, whom they've never met? How many of them are across time zones? Those things have to be factored in now. What is the new reality of how we measure employee performance or even the ROI of the company based on the realities of the hybrid workplace? And then finally, I would say you really need to rethink how you work, what's best synchronously, what's best asynchronously, right? And then, of course, what's the point of going in the office? If you're working on a large project and you need privacy, you should probably do that at home. So you want to think about why are you asking people to go back in the office? What's the best, to use the language again, ROI that we can get from that? Is it what form of collaboration or brainstorming are we going to offer people? Really good points. You recently led a series with TTA focused on emerging leaders and discussed leading with a more culture-focused mindset. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? How do you help leaders shape their organization's culture and keep it effectively? 
And so I start with the idea that we, we sort of overplay a lot, the idea of servant leadership. And then I underscore that, that it's a leader's responsibility that part of being a servant leader is that you have to, sorry, you, part of being a servant leader is creating a culture in which people understand that leadership is distributed throughout the organization. In other words, everyone should be thinking like a leader. So let me first start talking a little bit about what the responsibility is on employees. Because when we say servant leader, leaders start to think it's all about everything I do, right? It's all up to me. So there is a responsibility on the employee is that we want employees to think like leaders. And how do we, so for an example, is that we got to get people out of that SME, that subject matter expertise focus and think about the larger context. Why are they doing the work that they're doing? How does it fit into the overall architecture of the organization? This way that gives people an understanding of competing stakeholders, right? So one of the part of the maturity that we have as professionals is understanding that we might be aiming for the same goal, but the way we go about it might almost seem to conflict because someone's in charge of the money, someone's in charge of the engagement, someone's in charge of client relations, and often on a day-to-day basis, that creates conflict. So when people have to think like leaders to say, what is the greater good? How I can't be married to only my stakeholder interest. And finally, leaders and employees alike have to understand how everyone's contribution, big or small, contributes to the collective mission, right? Why we go to work every day and how does that support the foundational beliefs, the values and the output every day of the entire organization. Now, specifically with leaders, I would say data gathering and collaboration. The hallmark of an employee-centered workforce is the idea that we collaborate, that you ask your employees for input, but you do that strategically. And a lot of times they get pushed back and they say, well, I accepted every comment I got. I would never do anything to Right? Well, I, you, you know, you got to be strategic about it. You only want to collect data that you're going to do your due diligence to possibly, possibly implement. You don't implement everything. You never give that promise. But there is so much research that says the more input we get, especially from people that have no skin in the game, the more dynamic and accurate our solutions are. You also want to think about appropriate engagement in a culture-focused organization, right? We have those go-tos like, oh, Google is such a, an innovative workplace because they let you bring dogs to work. Well, when I worked at New York City Transit, imagine if conductors and train operators could bring their dogs to work. That wouldn't work, right? <laughs> so well, how do we make that kind of engagement work for the organization? I got it. Why don't you ask the employees what they want, right? So those are ways to engage them and not these sort of one-size-fits-all or these cool companies get Fridays off or have these free granola bars. I mean, what, or what are your employees really going to value? Another one, of course, is the commitment to coaching. A more consultative culture versus a top-down culture in public and private industry across the board struggle with this. There are progressive companies that still have very top-down leadership. And there are other, you know, other organizations that you would think. I've worked with paramilitary organizations that you might have associations about who are actually very progressive in in consulting people about, you know, their own professional development. Continuous cycle of feedback, corrective feedback, positive feedback, on-the-spot feedback, things like that. Having a consultative role with your employees. 
And finally, a commitment to professional development. No longer is that a nice to have, right? It's part of our jobs as managers and leaders to provide a professional development pathway or at least understand what the goals of your employees are in terms of their professional development and think about ways that you could vary their work experience that meet your business needs. Meaning that we don't have to have these traditional ideas of, of succession planning. I've worked with a lot of public industry clients that are sort of strangle-held, if you will, by that because they're civil service exams, things like that. But if you have the luxury to think about how you can broaden people's experience by giving them lateral moves or moving them from, say, operations to marketing or things like that, if it's possible. This way, when you do that, you engage employees with their skill set, you develop them professionally, and hopefully you have a bigger bench at the end of the day for your company to draw from when people leave. I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second. Sure. Because I love everything you're saying because it is it's really inclusive and I agree that there are there's an opportunity for leaders to like go to their people because you also have to think that there are plenty of their people who like don't want to go to them and like contribute their information or think that it's lackluster or not necessary. But then there's also like the flip side of that transparently where people like there's people who talk a lot and but always have terrible ideas do you know what i mean and like they can be really good at their job but there's like a skill gap there where it's like are you i'm i'm not going to be rude but it's like your ideas are horrible yeah like what's really going on here like are you new here no i'm just kidding but really like how do you how do you navigate then the inclusion for all and you know i want to pay attention to the fact that you're communicating to me but but the reality of time wasted because it's like not a great idea like how do you like how do you coach beyond that there's a lot of facets here that i'm like well what do you do if it's like really a waste of time to kind of try to make that inclusive right or am i the bad guy here so which <laughs> you one be that too one of your coworkers has horrible ideas i mean <laughs> listen we're only scheduled to 35 minutes <laughs> listen they would say the same about yeah. me it's all in yeah. good fun yeah. no we're all we're all joking here okay but well, really you know really, what i mean really yeah. great question i think one of the things is that you have to go into thinking that you apply these rules in ways that work for you, right? So one of the things about that, I would say, is that you, it, it, it doesn't mean everyone has an equal voice, but you give people a voice to the things that are going to ultimately affect them more. If, if people are being impacted, they should have some voice. Um, but some things have to come out of reactivity, right? You know, some things have to be top down they just because people aren't privy to certain confidential information. And I'm now going to directly answer the question about when people give bad ideas is that you have to build corporate culture, hopefully, it's not overnight, in which there's enough trust built that you can say to someone, that's a bad idea. And I don't mean, and, and diplomatically, and also we de develop a culture where people understand where you're going and your vision enough to maybe mitigate the bad ideas that they wouldn't, if they're so privy to your direction, they might not, their ideas might not be so bad or they wouldn't volunteer them because they're going to be schooled enough. So I guess those two things, those are not magic bullets and they're not, uh, you know, it, 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 they're not foolproof, but I would say those, those two things. They're very insightful and it still gives a direction because I know, like, I, I just immediately think, well, 
that's great and all, but what about if they're just if they're I think you would have to that. explain the why. Like why yeah. Yeah. it would not work for the organization and your mm-hmm. like opinion. You know, yeah. based on, you know, we based on what we're doing right now or mm-hmm. it's typically I know, you know, people will give me ideas and I would say that the majority are very good ideas, but sometimes it just doesn't align with the priorities. Mm-hmm. We have too right. many things going on. But but no, that's, that's and that's, that's great. Interesting. But, yes. Yeah, I think it, that's what you have to do to explain why, because then I think they'll eventually close up and not right. want to give any and more it, ideas. And it's very constructive. And like you said, it doesn't allow for closing up. It's like, okay, I got direction on this one. So now my next idea is probably going to be more aligned and I can't wait to hear what the feedback is there. Yeah, I get it. Wow, what a breakthrough. I and I also that. would agree to piggyback on Maria's point. The other great way to do that is put it back on them, which she's sort of implying with open-ended questions. Well, how does your suggestion fit into this overall plan of blah, 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 blah? You know what I mean? Then, then it's, the onus is on them to explain and align their connection. And so it might come to them while they're doing that. Ooh, this is a bad idea. When you're working with organizations, how do they go from, okay, this is what I want for our company mission and values, but how do I practice that? How do you help them with that? So you are zeroing right in on what I call my dog and pony show, Maria. This is my favorite thing to do with clients is to, first of all, bring attention that we assume way too much that people define and interpret words that we throw around the same way. We throw around professionalism, detail-oriented, inclusive, you know, conscientious, all of those things that litter, if you will, our job descriptions and our performance reviews that we just assume people define them and interpret them the same way. So a lot of times those definitions are the company owners or the leaders and and people are expected to guess what professionalism means to this company or that, you know, if they want to apply there or if they want to be successful there. So what I try to do is get everybody to work on coming up with actionable behaviors that underpin the words that they use that are important to the company. So those value words, right, that are part of the mission or words, like I said, that are soft skills, like being professional, that are in job descriptions and performance reviews. So I would encourage everyone to come up with actionable behaviors that define them. So for instance, say professional, we say on time. Well, on time to Maria means muffined coffee at nine o'clock. And to Jocelyn, it means 10 minutes before nine with your coat on. Or you work for John, it's like, hey, as long as you get your work done. Well, what does that mean, right? So we want to make sure that we are very clear about how we can communicate actionable behaviors to underpin the words that we use a lot, the soft skills, the value workers. Spread those behaviors around the organization as much best you can. And then you want to go one step further now, right? In this, in the world of value-driven employees, younger people tend to see a lot of meaning in their work. So you want to think about what is the larger context of these value words and your position on the world stage, right? You know, or what, what, what causes are you defending publicly in your social media feeds? And what do you, you know, look at right now, what we have with the conflict and the war, you know, companies are under the gun to, you know, have a public de- publicly declare their position on certain things. So I would say it's internal. 
shaping the culture by really focusing on defining value words, key soft skills that are important, and then thinking the larger context of your social position in the world as a, as a company's identity. I love this idea of identifying actionable behaviors because I just really resonated with what you said because I've heard it time and time again, whether it's somebody's excuse because they're always late that like time is a man-made concept. Like what is time really, right? <laughs> but but the reality is, is like, what does that mean? Because I've worked for, you know, bosses in the past who have been, you know, if you're getting your work done and we don't see like a certain pattern, like we're good to go or you know, on time means that like if your phone is ringing at 830 because you're supposed to be there, like you're already sitting at your desk ready to answer for it. So like, you know, on time is actually 10 minutes before. But how, you know, culture is so important right now. Companies are thinking about it nonstop. What do they need to do or how do they go about identifying what it like what those actionable behaviors need to be for them? in order to start implementing like more of a culture focused mindset. Right. So one of the things you said right there is, you know, what's the business need? Which is a great, it's a great question, Jocelyn. So is there really a need for people to be there at nine, right? Is one thing. But I would say what's most important, honestly, is the communication around the directive. So, or the behavior. So let me give you an example. If I you, if I tell you, 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 your job is customer service and you have to answer these phones and you put out every single fire that comes to you and you don't bring anything to me, your manager to tell me, tell me about that. And then when it comes to your review, I say that you, you know, you're not responsive. You are, you know, you're, you're not responsive. You're, you're not thorough. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm completely thorough. I go above my, uh, my job duties every day to solve problems that are often beyond my responsibility to not bother you with them because I've never communicated to you that problem solving thoroughness is about communicating everything to me. So I know what the problems are. Do you see that disconnect? So all it is, is about explaining the behavior as, a, as an expectation, then it is to just assume, you know what I need. And you're doing actually a better job than I'm asking you to do, but you're getting punished because it's not the job I want you to do. So that's where you shape the culture is being crystal clear first about what the behaviors mean. And second, to your point, how those behaviors reflect the business need. Why those behave? Why am I asking you to do those behaviors? Why am I asking you to be on time? How often do you see disconnects like that? where it really is just a difference of, well, this is what it means to me, and here's how you interpreted it. Is Almost like all the time. All yeah. the time. A lot, too. Yeah. yeah. Most of the time, it's misunderstanding and just not proper communication. I appreciate communication more than anything else. I just, it's the most important thing to me, whether it be good news or bad news or in between, that if I'm involved or need to be involved, just like keep me in the loop and I'll go to action. Like as I know I need to go to action, I will be here when you need to call me to action. And even if it's just, hey, I don't need you, like we're good to go, then that's still communication that like I can proceed to other things. I just, I I value over communication more than I do under communication because I want to know how things are changing and what's expected of me at that time. Yeah, I love that. Sometimes you just have people that are just, they have no self-awareness. 
as much as you can, you know, talk to them. Mm -hmm. They just can't see it. And then you have to come to a point where is it going to, you know, work out or do you have to part ways? Right. And sometimes that's the most difficult decision to make, too, is, you know, and maybe a good point for you, too, John, is, you know, what what happens when the amount of effort that you're putting in starts to affect the culture in the opposite way? Like, is that something that you encounter, too? Of course. And I think, again, it goes back to you can't mandate people's self-awareness. You could lead them to water to be more self-aware, but you just like you can't really mandate what motivates people. I was a, I will admit, I was a terrible high school student because my ego and identity was not involved, my self-esteem was not involved in being a good student. It was to all my other friends. And of course, you know, my self-esteem went down when they all got accepted these great schools and I didn't. But the point is you can't do the same thing with employees. There might be people doing an amazing job because they're motivated by something so beyond your ability to manage. So that's why the behaviors are so important. Someone be completely unself-aware, but you could say, you know what? These 10 behaviors are how we define inclusiveness. And these actionable behaviors are measurable and doable. They're not abstract. They're not like have a good attitude. It's I thank everyone that comes into, you know, the store or whatever it is and whatever, you know, milieu you're working in. And so that, again, if you want people to be self-aware, but grounding things in actionable, measurable behaviors can show people success in the right way without them having to do anything, just following an expectation. Right. Alleviate some frustration too, because you're giving them a guide, you know? I, yeah. So we just spoke about some challenges. What are some common pitfalls leaders face when they're trying to change corporate culture? And what's your well, advice on how they can avoid these? You know, it's funny, you you sort of alluded to that earlier, I think when Jocelyn was playing devil's advocate, right? You know, for the, I, you know, a, a lot of times I'll say, you know, ask your, ask your disengaged employees what they think would be a great idea, da, 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 and they'll say to them, you don't pay me enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> to, to answer. So you have to be open to that, that some of these best practices don't work. And it's a matter of trial and error, which Jocelyn was saying earlier in a collaborative employee-centered culture, you might get more input than you want. I've also, a big pitfall that I've gotten is that companies went from being so top-down to being inclusive overnight that, and this is true, this is true, I'm not making this up, that they're so collaborative now that they can't make a decision because they're so worried about everybody having a say. Well, so accept that change is a process. And there's something they call the gap in change management, right? Where things are happening in a vortex and the old ways are happening along with the new ways. You have to be open that change takes time and not that things don't happen overnight. And eventually you'll get to the other side. And that certainly not everybody's opinion matters all of the time. That's not a way to be inclusive. Right there is just accepting change and being patient with it. This has been a very intriguing conversation. I love how many different channels we can take because we're talking about emotional intelligence. We're talking about change management. We're talking about culture, like so many things that are important right now as cult- as organizations are growing and making changes. So I'd love if you've got like a top five fast tips for leaders that you can share with them who want to start moving towards this culture-focused mindset, like real quick tips from John Mancuso. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh that could be long. 
Okay. <laughs> and Maria changes the scope. Yeah. It can be whatever you want. My heart beat. We have all day. <laughs> okay. So top five, I would say, one, the inactive listener. I used to be so skeptical about teaching listening, but I have what I would call a longitudinal study. I did one-on-one follow-ups with a client for six months after everyone that went through the training. It was 64 hours of instruction. Listening was probably 30 minutes of those 64 hours. And that's what they remembered and saw the most value is active listening, not thinking about your response, seeking to understand what follow-up and not bringing it back to you or giving advice or anything like that. Just being an active listener. There's plenty of, you know, we could do a whole day on that. But so number one, active listening. Number two, do a 360 or something that is going to give you some criticism as a leader because there's research that says that people who move up higher and higher surround them more with yes people. So they become less self-aware as you become, you know, higher up with power to use that language because you, you know, you're not used to having people or people are scared to tell you what you're doing wrong. So have a mechanism by which you get criticism and, you know, live it, you know, work on it. So those are two. So I've got three more. Let me think that definitely step the culture by thinking about common value words in your organization and thinking about actionable behaviors that represent them. And I will piggyback that. This is still number three. Live by those values. I have a friend who was a whistleblower in her organization. Come to find out one of their value words in their mission is bravery. How about that? Right? You get in trouble for being a strong person and then insult to injury. Bravery is supposed to be a you know, competency, a core competency of the organization. And that's really insulting. So be a role model live by your value. Number four would be to make sure that you are always thinking like a leader, that you are not being reactive. I mean, there's just a responsibility that comes with that. We're all human beings, but try to regulate your reactivity, know your triggers, resolve conflict in a professional way as, as, as much as you can. And finally, I would say be one step ahead of things in your balance of reactivity and proactivity. And what I mean by that is so many people say, oh, this place is so reactive, so reactive. And I say to them a lot of times, that's okay. Especially think about a safety organization. It's okay to be reactive. If you spend your entire time trying to be proactive and spending all of this resource planning for something that's never going to come to fruition, that's a complete waste of time. So you have to be strategic about what you're going to be proactive and reactive for. And, you know, plan for the future because look what happened to COVID, you know, look what with COVID, I should say. But, but, but know that there's, you know, you don't always have to be doing that. Those are great tips and I could relate to each one of them. So I thank agree. you. Mm-hmm. I thank agree. Thank you very much. So yeah. I guess we're coming to a close and we're going to start you our are. final ATA 10 segment. I'm scared. Okay. <laughs> it's the TTA 10, 10 final questions for our guest. 
All right, Mr. John, don't be scared. This is the fun part of the show. Not that this whole thing wasn't fun. I mean, I didn't mean to. <laughs> You've been great. But these are just some fun, playful questions that we are going to ask you. We have 90 seconds. We're going to try to get through 10 of them. If you win, you will get some mighty, some mighty fine sound effects from our producer, David, along with some bragging rights. And if not, then we might shame you a little bit. But they're playful questions. Some, like... You know, math problems might be in there, but we're just here to have a good time. So if you're ready, John, we're going to get sure. started. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. If you were a superhero, what would your super ha- what would your superpower be? Um, empathy. What is that? Yes, absolutely. What's the 10th letter of the alphabet? Yay. What 2020 phrase would you like to officially retire? Yeah. You're yeah, on mute. <laughs> You're on mute. We're all in this together. What is your go-to karaoke song? Short People. What's your What's your favorite place that you've ever traveled to? Berlin. What's you? Oh, if you could have coffee with any living person, who would it be? Any living person. Oh wow. Wow. That's a tough one. Oh man. The um um oh wow. Same me. Jeez. I'm right yeah. there. Yeah. I was gonna say no. Yeah, why not? Josh Linnell. Sure. I've never been in person because it's COVID. I know, we need to make that happen. What are Scooby Doo's treats called? Scooby snacks. If you could eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would you choose? Peanut butter. Oh, a little you're made like a real meal. You can make yeah, peanut butter a meal. We're not judging fine. here. Seafood fried yavel. That would be fun. oh, even better. Yeah. If in the Little Mermaid, what is the name of Ariel's pet fish? I don't have children. I have no idea. <laughs> What's your favorite reality TV show? Oh, that's a tough one. I, I would say Ninety Day Fiance and all its franchises. Yeah. Fantastic, and we got it. Yes. Well, completed the GTA Ten. Unfortunately, mm. final count, one minute, 50 seconds. Oh, oh no. We're 20 seconds over. Oh. That's right. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> Shame. John, you have failed in your quest to complete the PCA 10. We extend our deepest sympathies to you in the hopes that you can someday move past this profound humiliation. We still respect you, John, just not nearly as much as we did before. Really, in a way, we're all winners, but in a more accurate way, you are not a winner. Just remember, tomorrow's another day, and who knows, it might not be as bad as this one. Godspeed to you, friend, and congratulations for completing, although not successfully, completing the TTA 10. We still give you a round of applause. I think you did an amazing job. And how about saying the 10 letter and the alphabet so quickly? That was never fast. I mean, that was so quick, John. Yeah, I have no idea where that came. I guess my name starts with a J. Yeah. It's why I picked oh, okay. the 10th letter as the question oh, because I knew that it was J. Oh, <laughs> I was like, at least I'll know when somebody gets it wrong. That was really fun, John. We do still love you, even though you are technically, you know, like a loser, but you are always a winner in our... Oh, don't say that word. See, I... See, I, my empathy. <laughs> we could never yeah, say that. <laughs> no. I, All right, I take it back. Okay. We can delete it. I want to be rude to John. You know I was, I was kidding, and I adore you. Okay. 
So, John, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to finally speak to you yeah. again. I've heard so many wonderful things, and thank you for joining us. At thank you. Bring out the talent. Thank you. To learn more about John and bringing a culture-focused mindset to your organization, visit us at thetrainingassociates.com. We'll see you later.